CityCast from Explicity. Nobody had anything to say. Not my father-in-law, not Professor Sheshu. They gathered around his bed where he lay, the Vitruvian scarecrow, looked at him, looked away and left the room as silently as they had gone in. In the front hall, fish eyes rolled up and down the length of the room, moaning and mouthing inarticulate mouthings. When she found that nobody paid any attention and that the men walked past her, she sat up, patted down her hair and demanded a glass of hot, thick coffee. Towards the late 1980s, the Indian voices in English literature started to be heard in a meaningful way. But in the early days, the writing was, quite justifiably, criticized as being imitative of colonial English, swollen and bloated, not keeping up with contemporary use. Either that or it swung the other way into being a self-referential rebellion against colonialism, often with cringeworthy caricatures of what those writers thought was Indian English. While this quixotic legacy of grammar, structure and idiom being the casualty of a war without an enemy, it hasn't entirely left us. But as a wise man once never ever said, through this fustian thicket, Indian voices peeped. New authors, they threw the solatopi away and started to write in English, the narrative being Indian, with neither apology nor explanation for parlance. My guest today, Poili Sengupta, is one of the first such writers. From her debut in the mid-80s, she has written widely and well. You can read about her in the podcast description. While Poili is both respected and reputable, I believe that she has not received all the accolade that she deserves for her prose, her poetry, and above all, for being a pathfinder kicking the doors open for younger Indian writers to walk into a better future. Let's go talk to Poili now and deep dive into her relationship with the English language. Poili Sengupta, welcome to the Literary City. Hi Ramji, hi everyone. Let's talk about your plays. You first started writing plays in the mid-90s, correct? That's right. And... Weren't you one of the first few voices in English language theatre in India? Yes, yes, possibly, yes, yes. Uh, Mahesh was already writing and there were others from Bombay particularly, mm -hmm. but uh, probably I was one of the early ones, yes. The ones before you and Mahesh Tatani, they were good, but they had trouble finding their voice clearly. How did you find yours? What I did was to remember that drama is speech. Okay. And therefore, what the actors have to do is to speak as Indians. So it had to also project the Indianness of us. Mm -hmm. And so I used the regional language as a backdrop while I was writing and tried to do it in English so that I broke the syntax of English so as to make it, uh, take it away from the Englishness of the language I was using, if you know what I mean. I do. So that, that was something that I started doing when I started writing drama. And at the bottom of all that is craft, isn't it? You use parlance because you knew how to use it. 
Yes, yes, yes. So did you and Mahesh Datani ever swap notes? Not uh, the craft itself, but he has directed a couple of my plays. Uh, but the craft of this, this particular aspect of writing, no, we never did, right? So as an English language playwright, you had to use the formal and the vernacular voice. Yes. It's like translation, isn't it? You have to know both languages. That's right. You need to know both the languages and hear it in your mind. And also, it's not just a bridge. It's a transformation. And the transformation is not just in the register of vocabulary. It is also in the images. See, for instance, in Mangalam, my first uh, play uh, written with this uh, inventiveness, I use images that you wouldn't get in English uh, writing. So it's not just the syntax or the vocabulary or the register of language. It's also images from our backgrounds, from our India. And that would include the characters in your mm -hmm. play, Keats was a tuba? Mm -hmm where these English yes. language professors sort mm -hmm. of live in their own world. Mm -hmm. Yes. In their That's heads, right. their playmates are Shakespeare, yes. Keats, and Shelley. That's true, 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 yes. My literature teachers in high school in Madras were just like that. Oh, I must tell you this funny story that Jagdish Raja told me about yes. interviewing yes. Brian Cox, you know, the, the guy who's the lead in uh, that TV show Succession, when he came to India, he came down to play Macbeth. And uh, Jaggi asked him, uh, what was his experience in all the other metros that he had played? And Cox said, in Bombay, there were coffers and shufflers in Delhi. There was rather sterile in mm. Calcutta. They were very intense. In Madras, mm -hmm. the entire audience recited the play along with the actors. <laughs> And Macbeth, <laughs> good God. <laughs> you know, in your play, Keats yes. was a tuba. Uh, your characters, English language teachers, one of them was expressing the futility mm -hmm. of trying to teach Charles Lamb's mm -hmm. dissertation upon roast pig to a bunch of students that often included yes. Muslim students. Yes. That, and it didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. The question I have is, Why? Isn't there a parallel with, say, English literature teachers in uh, New York City who must teach that same essay to uh, to Jewish students? Yes. They don't eat pork either. Yes, yes, yes. I yes. don't mean to suggest that the students uh, found it offensive, but I'd like to know why the teacher found it futile. Mm. No, there, no there, there's a little more to it. And that is, I was teaching, this is a real-life experience, I was teaching in Raichur to first-generation literates. These were children whose parents were vegetable vendors or domestic help. And they had come into English as if entering a foreign alien land. So I had to allow them to accept English in the first place, to accept that it is can be used and has meaning and can be used in their own environment because they all wanted to learn English. Makes sense. In that context, when it is something like The Angel in the House by Virginia Woolf or Upon Westminster Bridge by Wordsworth and Dissertation Upon Roast Pig by Charles Lamb, 
how the the content was a different matter was not just the first uh, barrier i had it was that it was written uh, that the essay is written in a very whimsical way there is a certain um what shall i say laughter in it that is very very difficult to communicate with children whose whose knowledge of the english language is so foreign and so remote and so removed from their lives so that was what the earlier earliest barrier was the most uh, daunting barrier next came the roast pig aspect of it because these were very sensitive children i could see that they were coming into pust level after great fights at home particularly the girls in fact one of the girls had to leave because her brothers didn't want her to come out of the house so she suddenly absented herself well happily and selfishly you wrote keats as a tuba for urban audiences like me <laughs> yes yes but here's another thing that i don't understand why is indian writing in english always so full of pathos mm. you know there's always so much unhappiness in the stories yes why do you feel compelled to for take take our play of reference keats was a tuba you did that to one of your protagonists oh that is ramanand right no sarala sarala yes mm. now in the play you had sarala go and uh, wait a minute is there such a thing as a spoiler alert for your plays <laughs> okay she offed herself but i need romance i wanted romance and broken romance there was one romance that was already flourishing you killed the girl i needed another as a foil yeah i needed a foil what to do she was like that <laughs> she was like that now poily your plays are funny patently funny but but do you think that given the indian sense of self inflation mm. that humor actually has a part to play is it respected no you're right it's not because i've written a play called inner laws which is absolutely funny i know it i've seen it there's ten women you've seen it and you know how funny it is there's suffering there <laughs> there is dilemma there is a puzzle there is a, something that has to be solved right but it is not suffering and it is incredibly funny when you read it when you see it yeah so i did do that but you know the play wasn't popular and why not what what really uh, people theater people were looking for was that pathos that suffering that crying that suicide that death my point exactly so the that so comedy is not very much appreciated it seems as if comedy is light stuff it's frivolous stuff there seems to be that kind of a mindset in our people yes in india <laughs> we have jokes rather than humor brings me to another funny anecdote this was in delhi mm -hmm. and you know the uh, the news readers of the day mm -hmm. in doordarshan state owned tv they were rather wooden you know they mm. spoke without any expressions you it was like it was like you you could just mm. tape their photograph to the radio and it would have the same effect mm. <laughs> and apparently the prime minister mrs indira gandhi then asked them to loosen up a little bit you know lighten up like yeah 
And so the next evening, yeah. you had this woman. Uh, she was the newsreader, very famous person. I forget her name right now. She yes. and her co-host, uh, you could see them laughing and you know smiling and carrying on in an animated way mm. as the music was bringing the news in. Yes, yes. And when the countdown finishes, she turns to the camera and she says, Good evening. Yesterday, 234 <laughs> people died in a plane crash. And sometimes the idiom of the humor doesn't travel. So while one of your voices is definitely humor, and that is something that you had to uh, explain or battle from time to time, another part of your Indian voice and writing is a distinctly South Indian voice. So... Tell me, was that another uphill battle for you? Yes, it affected me very personally uh, because my, one of my plays, my first play, Mangalam, had come up for an award, the Hindu Play Scripts Award. And one of the judges was Pearl Padamsi, and she did not understand the South Indian ambience of the play. So she rejected it. She dismissed it as not having to be considered. And there were other judges, particularly a South Indian gentleman, who went down on his knees, apparently, and told Pearl, look, this is a fantastic play. Please read it. Please understand it. This is the play from South Indian, uh, from a South Indian. But she wouldn't. And so there are these kind of cultural barriers within India. And now it's a lot better, but it did exist. And it does exist when... You have a fortress around you and you have a network that consists only of certain kinds of people and certain uh, cultural um, icons around you. That's dreadful and I'm sorry you had to go through that. Now to move on to your prose, you first were published in the mid-80s and then your novel Inga was 29 years later in 2014. What kept you? We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what took me so long. I think drama came in the way ah. because I started writing drama. Um, suddenly I realized that I didn't need to be reflective all the time. I could express myself on stage. So I started scripting plays and I found great fun in scripting the fun was because I was giving a play to somebody else who was going to adopt it and put it on stage. And that transformation from transition from the script to the stage is an exciting transition. And of course, some <laughs> directors totally ruined my plays and some enhanced it. So, you know, there was that, that excitement of, okay, now let's see how he or she is going to deal with this with my script. There was excitement in that. I loved it. And there was music and sounds and 
uh, things that could, and you could see my way, my my writing. It wasn't just on in print or in a book, almost dead. It was there on stage. It was alive, and it was uh, there were people watching it. That was tremendous for me. So that came in, and then um, when I wrote Inga, actually I had this thought of writing Inga for a long, long time. It just needed to come to that time, to the right time. Now, in Inga, you speak of your main character, Rapa. Is that how you say the name? Rapa, yes, Rapa. You write about how Rapa gets yes. introduced to literature. Now, there is a recurring theme that I noticed in all your writing. One such recurring theme is English literature. Yes. It is an important part of your outlook as a writer. Now, I sensed that there was an underlying story behind this business of her and her relationship with literature. Yes. Now, uh, you do a lot of this. You leave a lot unsaid and up to the mm. reader's imagination, don't you? That's right. That's right. That's right. You do float a balloon like that. Yes. 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 So would you say that this was a rather conscious ploy as a writer? Yes, it was very conscious. It was very conscious. I needed her, one, to be in Delhi so that she could get that English uh, literature uh, furthered, you know, because she was introduced to it by Professor Sheshu. And then she continued with that love for English literature when she attended school in Delhi, like I did. I was in Delhi too, because my father was working there. So I needed Rapa also to be in, in, in Delhi, where her father was an MP. And uh, continued to sh show her love and absorb English literature. Uh, the British Council and all of that was part of her upbringing. Yes, certainly it was a conscious decision. And the other reason for my wanting her to be so absorbed in English literature is because she wanted to be a writer and she wanted to find her style. So she explores all those other writers to see whether that would fit her. And she spoofs them. I loved that part of it, you know, of writing Inga, to spoof. Yes. <laughs> to spoof Carol and Enid Blyton. Oh, I loved that yeah, one. it was delightful. I loved the Enid Blyton bit and the U.S. Carol and Arthur Conan Doyle and all of them. And uh, I even have a few lines uh, trying a Jane Austen style, but she gives it up. Uh, but I loved doing that because I, I felt like those those writers were flowing between my fingers and I was holding them back or giving rein to them. I loved it. It was a very, very enjoyable part. A sort of literary mimicry. Yes, yes. Spoofing, yes. Spoofing, yeah. Now, the other recurrent theme in your writing was childhood stories. Mm. Your characters mm. bring their childhood with them. Mm-hmm. Again, was this a conscious decision? I don't think it was conscious, but I think it's in all of us. We are all children at the bottom. When we, when we, whether it's about food or about something, getting hurt about something or feeling very happy about something, it goes back to that child in us. We all carry that child with us, whether we like it or not, whether we deny it or not whether we accept it or not, it's there. That child is in you. That child doesn't go away. 
And it is the yeah. sense of the child that I read in your latest book for children, yeah. uh, Time for Ebby. It is on these stands, so to speak. Yes, yes. Now, it took me 15 minutes to read that book. <laughs> I knew I knew it would. Uh, and it took me 15 minutes to reread it. Ah. The first ah. time around, it is a children's book. Mm -hmm. But the second time around, I can find all sorts of analysis that I can throw at it. <laughs> I'm so glad you can. I'm so very glad you can. In fact, one uh, a reader who is a senior uh, citizen, really senior, is 80 plus, he wrote to me saying that whenever I feel depressed, I pick up your book, A Time for Every, and I read it and I feel happy again. So I was so touched by what he said. Because I meant it that way, you know. I meant it to be a family book, not a children's book. I meant it to be read out aloud by parents to children who are just beginning to understand books and for the children to read it for themselves uh, and then for grown-ups to read it to, as a throwback, whichever. But I wanted it to be a family book that lives with each generation, grows with each generation. That's and how I, I believe that you would probably have achieved that. You know, it's like those uh, nursery rhymes that uh, mm -hmm. are so insidious. Yes. You know, yes, they, they, yes. they're full of uh, tragedy and trauma and <laughs> yes. injury and pestilence. <laughs> and plague. <laughs> <laughs> now, death and pestilence don't really come into a time for Ebby. But I will say that I can read that book at, at two different levels. And that, Poily, I think is testament to your craft. Thank you. Before we go, could you read something from A Time for Ebby? Sure. Great. Now here's Poily Sengupta reading from A Time for Ebby. When he was absolutely sure that the clock was perfect, he would take out his special carving pen and inside the deep-fronted glass cabinet, somewhere he would inscribe the signature Ebon verse. Time is never young, time is never old, time is never still, time you cannot hold. Then he would wind life into his magnificent creation and make sure that its movements were as precise as synchronized dancers in a dance. Indeed, as every Ebon elder said, men must work with each other as precisely as the parts of a clock do, but also allow someone to lead them as dancers do. What fun! There are links in the podcast description for where you can buy a copy of A Time for Ebby. And now, Poili Sengupta, it was such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you ever so much. And I'll be back with What's That Word? Where we look at words and phrases that we use every day, but never stop to think about. And I'm back with What's That Word? And to help me with it is my co-host, 
she who put the eye in irreverence. As always, let her introduce herself. Take it away. Hello, my name is Pranati, but you can call me P. That's P with an A, not another E. Hello, P with an A, and quite understandably not another E. How are you sitting today? I'm sitting here inspired by Poyli Gupta. Right. You recognized her for being a pathfinder for new writers. Credit where it's due. You know, she uh, wrote in the Indian voice when it was yet not popular. And that's why she, I think that she's a pioneer, both she and Mahesh Tatani. Ah, yeah, both from Bangalore. And so we must preen. <laughs> All right, P with an A, what's that word? Which word? Oh, oh we're being funny today. Very droll. Very droll indeed. <laughs> I thought I would try my hand at a dad joke. Ah, but that's not how dad jokes are done. You know, yours sounded like that knock-knock joke. How's that? What knock-knock joke is that? Want to hear it? Yes, I happen to love knock-knock jokes. Well, yeah, me too. Okay, this one happens to be a ride. All right, let's go. Let's start. Start now. Uh, okay, knock-knock. Who's there? Ah, wait. Ah, gross. Boo. <laughs> all right, okay, P with an A, that being your lesson. Now, with all humility again, what's that word? Okay, husband. Husband. Okay, a word of advice. You can't find one by looking inside a dictionary. <laughs> Gosh, no, I'm not looking. But Poili Sengupta mentioned one of her characters spoofing Jane Austen. And my mind went straight to Mr. Darcy. Oh, how naughty. <laughs> well, you see, direct connection to husband. But I really want to ask about the word husbandry, such as animal husbandry. Animal husbandry. Sounds like a biology class giggle, doesn't it? <laughs> Go ahead then. Make me laugh. Okay, first the basic definition. From early days, the word husband essentially means manager. And therefore, husbandry means management. You know, farm management, land management, but management nonetheless. And, of course, the management of a house. So, in course of time, the husband came to be known as the manager of the house or household. Well, the wife lets him think that, at least. True. Men often live in the delusion that they are husbands. And, to be true, the word husband technically has nothing to do with marriage. And, by association, animal husbandry has nothing to do with the reproduction of farm animals. And the Department of Animal Husbandry is not a group of bestiality-minded bureaucrats getting paid to have their jollies. <laughs> oh, how disappointing. <laughs> okay, on to the etymology then. We need to pedal back to the year 1000. And in Old Norse, the word to describe a peasant who also owned the land was a bondi, or well, that's how I think it's pronounced. Anyway, B-O-N-D-I. So, if you add hus to that, it means mm. that he owns the land and the house. So, hus bondi became husband. So, a husband was not necessarily married? Not at all. He could have been married, separated, divorced, widowed, single, incel. <laughs> so, if a passerby asked a woman feeding the chickens, where is your husband? She would be very confused. 
Yes, if she had also married the iron monger on the side. <laughs> well, any interesting uses of husband in literature? Well, straight away I can think of one, you know, Shakespeare. Right. Portia says, Lorenzo, I commit into your hands the husbandry and manage of my house. And that was written in 1596. So you see, Portia was committing unto Lorenzo the management or husbandry of her house, maybe of herself. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And when did husband finally come to mean partner of a wife? The definition of husband as a wife's partner actually coexisted for a while. It was not for 300 years after the first use of husbandi that uh, the word came to mean that the head of a household was a married man. But it, etymologists feel that that was a natural progression because heads of household at the time tended to be married. And it was a natural definition. Right. But there's something else that I thought of. And that is, you know, in uh, Canada, the language in South India, which you speak, what is the word for husband or rather one word for husband? Yejmandru. And the word for manager? Uh, same thing. You see, there you go. Same word for husband and manager. Very respectful of you, Canada ladies, I must say. Make your men feel like managers. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure lots of Kanadega husbands will testify to that. <laughs> I submit. I've heard the stories. <laughs> and the word hubby is a recent short form? Not at all. In fact, that contraction goes back to uh, the late 1600s. In fact, about 1680 was when hubby was first used. Men have plagued us since. Mea culpa. Or should I say, we are culpa. And terrible managers. Oh, you have your uses. I guess so. I hear we are whack at husbanding unruly beasts. <laughs> okay, I must go feed my chickens now. Foul play, it's called. All right, that was fun. P with an A. Let's do it again next week. Bye. <laughs> And that's our show. Let's see you again next Wednesday. In the meantime, have fun. Bye.